Welcome to Good Friday service. My name is Paul Graham. I'm lead teaching pastor here, if you don't know me. And for those that are visiting online, welcome. We are continuing in our series in Matthew. It has aligned itself quite well to the Easter season to finish off Matthew um, in the final chapters here. And we're going to be in Matthew 27 and then moving around the scriptures in various places. Um, Because in Matthew chapter 27, we get a very clear description of the event of the crucifixion. And as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, Jesus has been in the process of describing to his disciples and to us what it is that he's going to do at the event of the cross. And now that we are at the event of the cross, the crucifixion, Matthew gives us an incredible description of what is taking place at the crucifixion, but the text only hints at the accomplishment of the crucifixion. And so we want to first read about the event of the crucifixion and then take the next step this morning to deeply understand the accomplishment because it is more than just an event. It's what is accomplished at the crucifixion that is most important to us because it's in the crucifixion of Jesus that God has answered the question at the center of the entire Bible. And he has solved the problem at the center of the whole human race. The the question at the center of scripture, the problem at the center of the human race is this. How can a righteous God be loving towards rebellious sinners who are justly due his wrath? How can God be merciful and just at the same time? And that is what the cross accomplishes in many ways. But let's first just pause, uh, open our Bibles, and consider the end of Matthew chapter 27, the event of the crucifixion. And I'm just going to read the last part of it this morning. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was a darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on the reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So that is the event, the final moments of the crucifixion. Jesus hanging on the cross where we have put him. And he cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? That's the question. 
Why does this have to happen? Why this event? And it answers the question, as I said, how can a righteous God be loving towards rebellious sinners and justly do his, and who are justly due his wrath? And Proverbs 17, 17 helps us understand how crucial this question is and how, how, how big the problem is. Proverbs 17, 17 says, acquitting the guilty and condemning the just, both are detestable to the Lord. Do you get that? So, letting someone free who's guilty or condemning the just, both of them are bad. Both of them are wrong and detestable to God. So, so how can Jesus release the guilty and not be guilty in himself? E- even as Christian creatures of sort of morally questionable character such as we, virtually every human being reacts with disgust if a judge were to pronounce the wicked as innocent and condemn the innocent as though they are guilty, would we not? I mean, we are not bastions of morality in the universe, and even we know that that is a wicked judge that sets the guilty free and condemns the innocent. A judge who acquits the mugger and imprisons the mugged, or to release the abuser and jail the abused, or to reward the embezzler and punish the embezzled, we know that that's wrong. We know that that's an abomination. If a judge did that, they would be considered corrupt. So then how much more so to do this, and how much more so then is this true of a righteous and holy God? If God were simply to ignore the sin of sinners, he becomes an abomination to himself. And so how are we guilty sinners going to receive mercy from the most incorruptible and most righteous judge? How will anyone receive a verdict of not guilty? Now the interesting thing here is that it's most revealing of our sinful nature that we don't immediately identify this problem. We think a lot about our problem, we don't think about God's problem. I don't think anybody in the culture of our world right now is losing any sleep over the problem of how God can be both loving and just towards sinners at the same time. Nobody's really concerned. Nobody's thinking, God, you've got a big problem. How, how are you going to be just and loving at the same time? Nobody loses any sleep over that question in our culture. Everyone, on the other hand, in the world is pointing their finger at God and saying, how dare you punish sinners and how can you let people go to hell? That's what people point their finger at God and worry about. They're not concerned with this thorny problem that he has, that he's righteous and he somehow has to be merciful towards sinners. They're not concerned about that. They're saying, how dare you even judge us? How dare you send anyone to hell? But the big problem in Scripture that I'm trying to get across here is just the opposite. How can a just God ever let sinners into heaven? That's the real problem. And nobody's really asking that one. Even Christians don't ask that one too often. So if we're going to grasp the accomplishment of the cross, not just the event of the cross, if we're going to grasp the accomplishment of the cross, we have to understand that this is the most important problem in the universe. In fact, we have to understand that it's not even the most most important problem for us, but it is even the most difficult problem if we understand it rightly for God. And so the accomplishment of the cross first What I want us to get this morning is that the accomplishment of the cross first is for God's vindication. 
God's forgiveness of our sin is a potential threat to his very nature. John Stott says, forgiveness is for God the profoundest of problems. And then he quotes Bishop Westcott, who says, nothing is superficially seems simpler than forgiveness, whereas nothing, if we look deeply, is more mysterious or more difficult. Think about that. We, we think that forgiveness is something easy. I mean, if we can do it, why can't God? And I just wave my hand at the car that cuts me off in traffic, and I say, I forgive you. Look how easy it is. I just forgave that person for cutting me off in traffic. It's easy. And if somebody borrows my lawnmower and breaks it, it costs a little more. But I can forgive them. That's fine. I'll pay to have it repaired. You know, they borrowed my lawnmower or they broke it. I forgive them. See, it's easy. I can pay for that. That's okay. But what if someone gives my child drugs? What if someone robs my parents and leaves them beaten in their home? What if a nation enslaves another nation? Hmm. Is forgiveness really easy? We, we think it should be easy for God. I mean, we can forgive. Why can't God forgive? But is forgiveness as easy as we think it is? What if it really costs us? And is forgiveness really just? Can we just forgive a nation for enslaving an entire other nation? Would that be just? Just ah, wave our hands. No problem. Can we forgive people for systematically going from house to house, robbing and beating the elderly? Oh, just let them go. It's easy to forgive. No, this is a problem. (laughs) How do we forgive? It seems simple, but it is incredibly, profoundly difficult. So, if it's my reputation, I suppose it's no big deal for me to forgive, to let things go if I bear the cost. But what if it's God's reputation? What if it's not just his reputation that's compromised in easy forgiveness, but his very nature because he would be considered unjust? Forgiveness is a problem for God, if I can state it that way. And Paul addresses this dilemma in Romans 3.25. He says, the purpose of Jesus' death was to demonstrate God's righteousness because in his patience, God passed over the sins previously committed. In other words, Paul is saying, prior to the cross, God held off into the future the final reckoning of sinners. And when we consider even just the sins of, say, somebody in the Old Testament like King David, that are finally confronted by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan responds to say, the Lord has taken away your sin, you will not die. And we think, what? This is David we're talking about. Uh, adultery, uh, preying upon vulnerable women, exercising power imbalance to get his way, lying about it, murdering her husband. And apparently, the prophet Nathan says, God says your sins are forgiven, you won't die, spiritually, he's talking about there. It's all passed over by a supposedly righteous God. If any judge here in Canada got caught doing that, they'd be removed from the bench. So how is God still righteous if he just forgives David and Joseph's brothers and Jonah and everybody up to the cross who have sinned? Romans 3 says that 
The cross accomplishes God's righteous justice. Sure, God was patient. He held his justice at bay until it could be dealt with at the cross. His patience with David and his ability to release him from his sin was due to the cross that lay far in the future that David could only imagine a savior that would save him. Romans 3.26 says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier in the one who has faith in Jesus. So God was patient then in order to show his righteousness now. And in Paul's time of writing, Paul's talking about now, at the time of the cross, at the time of Jesus, at the time of the crucifixion. Now, Sinners are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, he says in verse 24. So this is first and foremost how we must deeply understand the cross and what it accomplishes as we come to it today. Before the cross is able to operate for anyone else's sake, the cross has to first operate for God's sake. The cross is God's answer first to the divine problem of protecting his righteous nature. It's God's answer for his own vindication and the declaration of his glory. It puts his holiness and purity and righteousness and justice on display alongside his mercy and patience and love. That's the first thing the cross accomplishes, and we have to understand that. It has to accomplish this for God. In in a way of speaking, it has to get God out of the problem that he's in, that he is holy and righteous and pure and just, and he has to find a way to be merciful to sinners who deserve punishment. He's got to solve that problem. And Christ accomplishes that, Paul says. Numerous places the Bible tells us. The cross accomplishes the vindication of God's righteousness. And it has to solve that problem first before it can be helpful to us. Jesus says during the sorrow of his days before the cross in John 12, we touched on this in Matthew a different time that he said the same thing, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. What purpose? Does he say to save sinners? No. He says, Father, glorify your name. That's the purpose. That's why Jesus is here. That's why he's come to this hour of the cross, to glorify the name of the Father. The vindication and the glory of the Father is the first thing the cross does. The accomplishment of the cross is God's glory and then secondarily our salvation. The cross vindicates God before it rescues us. But we are able to doubly rejoice today because the cross also does accomplish our salvation. Matthew 27, 46 says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the question we've been asking and answering. Why the cross? Why must God forsake his own son? Why the Passover lamb? Why the sorrow of Gethsemane? Why the crucifixion? And first we've seen for God's vindication to be found just, but now also for our our salvation. The debt for our sin has to be paid for, and it is paid for in full, thus allowing us to approach the judge and discover restored relationship with him. The New Testament explains this transaction at least a dozen, maybe 15, maybe 20 different ways. 
It explains the transaction that takes place on the cross multiple different ways so that we can appreciate it from wherever we're coming from and whatever we need from the gospel and the cross, the cross supplies. I just want to list a few of them so that you feel the completeness of the accomplishment, the completeness of what God has done for us. The first one I already hinted at, the first thing it does is Christ accomplishes for us reconciliation. On the cross, Jesus reconciled our relationship with God. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So on the cross, Jesus accomplishes reconciliation of a relationship that is broken. Secondly, Jesus redeems or rescues us from the curse of the law. The law condemns us. It's a curse that hangs over us because we cannot meet its righteous demands. But the cross death of Jesus frees us from the demands of the law and rescuing us from its curse. Galatians 3.13 says it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So in the cross, Jesus accomplishes removing us from under the curse of the law. He reconciles us for God in our relationship, and he removes the curse of the law. John in John 3.14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And, and John is referring to that moment in the wilderness with the people of Israel, and God has smitten them with a curse, the curse of the fiery serpents that are biting them, and they're becoming poisoned for their sin and their rebellion, and they're dying in their sin from the poisonous snakes. And he tells Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, and anyone who looks at the serpent is saved. Right? And that's what Paul's referring to. That's what John's referring to. He's saying Jesus has been lifted up on the cross. He's been lifted up in the wilderness to free us from the curse. But that's not all he accomplishes. He also sets us free from slavery of sin. Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So on the cross, there's an accomplishment here. On the cross, our old sinful nature was put to death and is put to death again. Every day we come to the cross for its power. The cross is not something you leave behind in the Christian life. It's not something that's kind of... I, you know, I went to the cross when I was a teenager and now I'm done with it. Every day you come to the cross and you hang your sinful nature there with Christ and you put to death the old flesh because we are still in the flesh and we have to go to the cross for its power. As they say on the internet, haters are going to hate. Sinners are going to sin. We cannot help but sin until we are set free by the cross and given freedom to choose life over death. Don't be surprised when your unsaved neighbors and friends sin against you. They will sin. Don't be surprised even when you sin again. You will sin. But we have the power now of the cross to come. Jesus accomplished something on the cross for us that we can put off the old flesh and put on the new. We don't have to react in our sinful nature. We can react by the Spirit. So he's reconciled us to God. 
He has set us free from the curse of the law. He has put to death our old nature on the cross. Fourthly, he's defeated death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we considered this many weeks ago now in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus proclaimed that the gates of Hades or the gates of death cannot prevail against the power of his church. Why? Because Jesus has entered into the gates of death and he's come out three days later with the keys. Jesus has all the keys. He has all authority. And he's defeated death for us. And he's accomplished the defeat of death on the cross. And as we will see in a couple of days in the resurrection, we have the proof of it. But fifthly, he's not done all those things. He's also adopted us into the royal family of God at the cross. We're made children's and heirs with Jesus. Romans 8:15 says, "You receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, "Abba, Father." The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together as we partake in the suffering of the cross, in the sacrificial life we live in this world, then we are glorified with God. He's adopted us into the royal family of God by the cross. Not only has he done all of those things, but he's also brought us healing in our brokenness. Isaiah 53.5 says, By his wounds we are healed. It's his wounds, it's his stripes, it's his beatings, it's his nails, it's the spear in his side, it's his wounds that heal us. Our brokenness is healed by his brokenness. It is through Jesus that any real healing comes into our life. Old wounds and new wounds can both be healed if we bring them in humility to the cross of Jesus Christ and the good news of what he's done for us. He's given us abundance in our poverty. If you want to look at the accomplishment another way, the Bible tells us that Jesus endured poverty so that we might have abundance. 2 Corinthians 8 says, For you know the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that, through, that you through his poverty might become rich. The ultimate poverty that Jesus experienced was on the cross. Jesus first became poor when he left heaven and the side of his father and willingly was born as a human to enter into our fallen creation and get down into the mud and into the suffering with us. He became poor. But his poverty reached its depths on the cross. He became poor so that we might become rich in grace and mercy, heirs to salvation and heirs to the kingdom and into eternal life. Another way that we can look at the accomplishment of the cross that the scripture teaches us is that on the cross, Jesus exchanged his glory for our shame. We should be objects of shame in our sin, and yet Jesus bore our shamefulness so that we could receive his glory. Hebrews 12.2 says, Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set out for him, just imagine that statement, <laughs> for the joy set out for him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and he has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. 
And so Jesus, rather than being ashamed, or for us, rather than we being ashamed, we're victorious because of the cross work of Jesus. Jesus bore our shame so that we don't have to be ashamed. He took our shame so that we could receive his glory. Jesus accomplishes this on the cross. But perhaps the description that describes this twofold accomplishment of the cross in vindicating God and releasing and saving us, the description that encapsulates that the best perhaps is found in the book of Colossians, which is rapidly becoming my favorite letter. Jesus paid the debt we could never pay. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So you see, just as we've looked, and I haven't even touched on nearly all of them. I mean, that's just nine of them. There's probably 20 or more. The scriptures go through systematically and show us that Jesus accomplishes all of these things on the cross. Jesus is not just doing one thing on the cross. He's doing thousands of things on the cross. He's accomplishing everything on the cross for us, whether it's reconciliation, whether it's set free from the curse of the law, whether it's set free from the slavery of sin, whether it's putting to death our old flesh, whether it is... Um, what were all the ones I was talking about? <laughs> Having victory over death. All of those things, whether it's making us rich out of his poverty, whether it's making us joint heirs with him in Christ and adopting us into his family, all of these things describe what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross. But here we see most clearly this one. He's also paying the debt that we can never pay. We see the reconciliation and salvation that we receive at the cross at the same time that God is vindicated. And all the spiritual authorities that are looking on are put to shame because God is found to be just and righteous. In this text in Colossians, the exchange takes place from death to life, from condemnation to forgiveness, from being cursed by the law to the satisfaction of the law, all because God has taken the debt that we owed for our sin and he canceled that debt and he set it aside. But how did he do it? Because he still has to be just. And he did it by nailing it to the cross. And it was an ancient practice. And it still survives to some extent, even right up to today. You could probably look in any major newspaper today and find these kinds of notices about debt being paid off or being bankruptcies being liquidated and finished. They still take out ads in the paper. They still nail these proclamations up in public. That when a personal bankruptcy or a chattel slavery debt is finally paid off, the notice that the debtor was free of the debt would be nailed up in a public place, sometimes even nailed right to the front door of their house, so that everybody knows this person in our community is now free and clear. They're no longer a slave. They are no longer having their wage garnished, or however you say that word. I was always confused about garnishes and garnishes. But anyway, you know, this person is free. It's nailed up in public for people to see. And God says, you know where I nailed it? I nailed it to the cross. You're free. It's done. And I'm vindicated. It's put on display. 
He disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ, in the cross. He nailed the debt of our sin to the cross, and he publicly puts his glory and his victory over sin on display. He says, I've done it. I've paid the debt. God says, I've solved the problem. I've figured it out, and I've accomplished it. I've solved the problem of my people's sin and my righteousness coexisting. You cannot call me unjust because it's paid, but I'm also the justifier because I paid it. And all the accusations of the powers that are opposed to him are put to shame, and he has victory over them through the cross. We have all these descriptions of the cross, and and we can only begin to test the depths of its accomplishment in this life. I can imagine that in eternity, we are going to be just spending thousands of years unpacking what Jesus did on the cross. It says in Revelation, even after the resurrection, well, Thomas sees it first, (laughs) right? Even after the resurrection, Jesus in his glorified body, he's got the nail holes in his hand, he's got the wound in his side. And then later on in Revelation, as People are entering into the kingdom. John sees the vision of the future kingdom. He sees a lamb that's alive, but as though slain. The lamb is Jesus, but he still bears the wounds as though he's slain. For eternity, we are just going to look at the wounds of Jesus and think of the cross and what he did there. For eternity. We can't even begin to unpack all these things. But all these things and so much more are true of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. First, for the glory of God, but it's only glorious because it was effective. It's only glorious to find God just because it was effective in setting us free from our sin. The cross really does save sinners. The cross really can save you. Jesus can reconcile and heal. He can defeat death. He can transfer us out of darkness into light. He can replace despair with joy, exchange your shame for glory. He can set you free from sin. He can satisfy the demands of the law. He can absorb the wrath of God. He can pay the debt you cannot pay. You can look at the cross however you need to look at it. The cross accomplishes it. Jesus does it. God is victorious. And he's glorious because of it. That's the good news of the cross. That's why we call Good Friday good. Because Jesus has done all of this for us. At one place in history, he's done it at the cross, and that's why we never leave it. The cross has accomplished all of of this for those who trust him. Just trust in Jesus, that he has done this. Whatever you're feeling, he's accomplished it for you. He's already gone through Gethsemane. He's already gone to the cross. Jesus has already suffered and died. He's drank the cup that he wished had been taken from his hands, and he's risen again. Jesus is not going to waste that accomplishment on the cross. If you come to Jesus and you put your hope and your trust in him, do you possibly think that he's going to say no after he's already done it on the cross? Do you think Jesus is going to waste what he's done? He is eager, eager to apply the accomplishment of the cross to your life. He will not turn you away if you come to him and trust him. Let's pray.
Father God, what a great, great season that we can just dwell on your accomplishment on the cross, that we can just apply it to our own lives. I mean, I picked out nine out of however many in Scripture. Whether we're feeling the curse of the law and not being able to measure up in our own good works and trying real hard to satisfy you, and we realize that we'll never work hard enough, or whether we're feeling ashamed of our sin and just destroyed in our identity, so ashamed, so worthless, or whether we're feeling the brokenness, the hurt of being sinned against, or the hurt of our sin and what it's caused in our life, whether we're feeling alone like we have no family, nobody loves us, that we have no future, Father, however we approach the cross, whether we need your inheritance, your mercy, your freedom, whatever it is we need, Lord, Father, we can come to you because of the cross. So I just pray that we would take the accomplishment of Jesus on the cross and apply it to our own lives. Whatever brokenness, whatever sin, whatever shame, whatever loneliness, whatever abandonment, whatever grief, Jesus has paid the price so that we can be reconciled, we can be set free, we can be redeemed. We can live in love and joy and mercy with you forever because of the cross.